0: this whatever I want to be like with the filmmakers on the ground like in refugee camps and like in poor neighborhoods because I can speak the UN language but I relate more to people you know struggling and and figuring things out
1: Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and influential guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging, and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and Zestful Ager. And if you like this podcast, you'll love my companion course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You'll have access to what I've learned from being a psychotherapist for 30 years and the latest research on what habits really matter and contribute to vibrant aging. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. Last week, we had the privilege to speak with Bronnie Ware. She's the author of The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. She was a palliative care nurse in Australia, and she took note of the top five regrets of her patients as they were dying, and she wrote an international bestseller. It's a beautiful book. And next week, we're going to speak with Judy Butler, who was a former hospital chaplain, and now she's a pastoral counselor who specializes in helping adult children of aging parents sort through the challenges of caring for them. It's a beautiful interview, and Judy knows what she's talking about. She's been through it, and she has really helpful and wonderful advice for those of us caring for our aging parents. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky beside me, my coffee in my hand, so let's begin. Today we're fortunate in that I am going to talk to Lisa Russell who is an Emmy award winning filmmaker with 15 years producing films and curating creative events that lie at the intersection of arts, social justice and global development. She's an established global speaker and thought leader, a two-time TEDx speaker, a UN and NGO contracted storyteller and art creator, Fulbright specialist, speaker writer, and is a regular presenter at film festivals, storytelling summits, leading universities, international conferences, and youth leadership programs. Lisa, your life is all about social justice. Can you describe some of your your favorite projects?
0: Sure, and thank you first of all for having me. It's really an honor to be able to you know share my story, I guess, with your your amazing audience. Um, I have a lot of projects going on, and um, it's both exciting and a little, you know, nerve wracking a little bit because my day to day is just it changes. It's different from one day to the next. Um, I guess my most urgent and and closest event or project that I'm working on right now is that I'm helping to draft the first ever artist declaration for climate action. And that mm-hmm. stems from, um, I do a lot of work as a filmmaker and as an arts curator at the United Nations, but I've been in many places where I feel like I'm you know, one of the few creative voices that are at the UN, because the UN is really like a policy and program institution. And my world is much more about like arts and, you know, con- creative content that moves people and inspires people. And even though I could argue all day why those two worlds should be working together, they don't always know how to. So I sort of, because I I came from a development background, I have a master's in public health, and I w- have been working as a professional filmmaker, I'm able to straddle these two worlds. And so this artist declaration is really a commitment from the creative community, the global creative community, to say, we're going to commit to assisting efforts to advocate for climate action. So that means we are going to use our talents to help raise the conversation about climate action. We will commit to practicing our art forms in a more sustainable way. And that could mean, you know, being cautious of the products that we use, of the waste that we, we create and also the carbon footprint that we we have or that we put on the planet um and then the last is just agreeing to work in partnership with institutions and organizations who are working on climate change um because again like because our voices aren't always in these rooms um i think that there's a disservice to the movement because i like to say you know you know, first of all, if you can survive, I live in New York City, if you can survive in New York City as an independent artist, independent filmmaker, you must have incredible problem solving and creative thinking skills. So why wouldn't you want that, those minds or our minds in a room with policymakers talking about climate change? So that's sort of one example of how I'm using sort of arts and social justice and advocacy to address sort of social good issues
1: there's so many issues Mm -hmm. so many issues and I know you have really covered many of them you were in Kosovo you've been all over the world in Africa how do you choose which is most important to you at that moment
0: so I don't choose to be honest like I don't I wouldn't even say that this is my job. I'll say that this is like truly who I am. Um, and so if there's an injustice that I see in my personal life, I, address it if it's a global issue. And like right now, climate is very big. Um, There's the first ever climate summit by the UN Secretary General. So that, of course, is like, you know, prominent in my, in my circles. Um, But I I oftentimes will gravitate towards things that, that inspire me because I've met somebody whose personal story, you know, um, resonated with me. Sometimes it's it's very practical. Um, I get asked to produce films for the UN. And sometimes they know the topic or the angle of the story that they're interested in. So I pitched for that. And then I get, you know, I get, I, I use my filmmaking talents and my, and my storytelling skills to highlight that particular um, injustice. So I really like, to me, it it may seem chaotic, but to me, it just absolutely makes sense.
1: You just follow the trail of injustice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just, I mean, what what speaks to me. And there are some movements that I'm like, okay, well, there's a lot of people on that already. Like, I didn't really participate in the Women's March, even though I'm a big advocate for, for women's issues. And I do a lot of work around women's issues because I feel... That movement is so strong that I'll contribute where I can, but I think my skill set is really trying to highlight um, issues or or movements that aren't in the mainstream. So, mm-hmm. for example, I, I did, you know, one of the first films on a childbearing injury called Obstetric Fistula back in 2003, 2004, which is a horrific childbearing injury um, where women are left leaking urine and waste because they didn't have access to a cesarean section or any kind of emergency obstetric care. And nobody was talking about this at the time. There were you know, very few films or whatnot. Um, after I did my film, Oprah covered it. She visited an amazing hospital in Ethiopia. Um, there was a feature-length film that did really well. So it's sort of like, I guess, my skill set or my interests really lie at how do I elevate issues and movements that are still sort of on the ground um, mm-hmm. and where I can lend my talents and my voice to help elevate them.
1: Mm-hmm. You use the term poverty porn yes. um, in your uh, one of your TED Talks. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and how you developed as a filmmaker to to sort of observe that and 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 understand that and want to shift the narrative.
0: Sure. So I think for me to answer that question, I should start off by talking about what actually inspired me to become a filmmaker because it's sort of the same thing. Um, I had no intention of becoming a filmmaker; didn't think about it. Wasn't picking up cameras. I did some like health communications project or coursework in my in my master's program but i landed my first job out of my master's in public health program in kosovo and albania and i was helping with refugee programs um, helping to raise funds um, you know, work with the media. I was doing a lot of work in Albania and Kosovo. And at one point I was asked to escort Kitty Dukakis, who's the wife of a well-known politician named Michael Dukakis, to Albania. And we were invited to this high-level meeting at the U.S. Embassy. And they had invited women from the refugee camps who were running programs you know for children and other women and It was a really small group. there was probably like I think maybe around ten or twelve of us and When I looked around the room, I noticed these two women just did not look happy to be there um they just looked really upset, and when we went around the room, they said, "You know." were really upset with the journalists who are coming into the refugee camps. And they said they're coming in and they want to tell this one story. They were focused on this one story and it was an important story for the war in the Balkans. And that was, well, I guess any war, but it was the, the use of rape as a tool of war. And they said, mm-hmm. so the journalists are coming in and they want to tell this story. So they go into the refugee camps. They say, we need to speak to women who've been raped. Can you raise your hand if you've been raped? And that shocked me. That just floored me. But then what they said afterward is what sort of put the spark in my head about becoming a filmmaker, because they said, you know, no longer is this disrespecting what the Kosovar people are going through. But at the end of this war, we will no longer be remembered as Kosovar women, but as Kosovar women who've been raped. And I was like, wow, that is powerful. And so when I came back, I started paying more attention to sort of the news reports and the PSAs and the documentary films coming out of the global development community. And it was very much like a one dimensional, you know, Ethiopians are famine victims. Mm -hmm. You know, more recently, West Africans are Ebola victims. And it was this idea that we no longer see people as people. We see them as problems. Mm -hmm. And... um there's been huge criticisms i would even argue my industry my my community of the global health and development community is maybe the only only industry that gets like mocked and criticized for the types of stories we tell because there is like a saturday night live skit that is basically, you know, like, oh, for 25 cents a day, you can help this poor African Mm. child and whatever. And so these ideas that we only see, you know, and I -hmm. I started this project called Myth of the Motherland, that we only see Africans as like victims of AIDS, or poverty, or war or whatnot, is really, you know, like on a human level, just disrespectful to Mm -hmm. the people going through these struggles. It's not that they're incapable, they lack the resources um, mm-hmm. to be able to do the things that they want. And I would even argue that sometimes the people with the less resources are actually the more creative people in this world, um, because they have to figure out how to do certain things without the ease of having, you know, somebody just give them money or write them a check. So poverty porn is really this idea that we're exploiting people suffering for mm-hmm. our own, like entertainment and our you know, we want to write checks to make us feel good. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's not it's not the right way to address poverty or ill health or war, um, because it's just we need to keep the dignity of the people that we're that we're highlighting. And even in my 15 years, what I've noticed is that when I shoot in other countries like they don't want to be on camera because they're like, first of all, you're mm-hmm. going to make us look bad. And secondly, you're making money off of our suffering. You're getting paid to tell stories about our suffering, even though I'm like, listen, Mike, I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not make one lots of them. Of money. Yeah, I'm not yeah. one of them. I. This is my career and what I do. But I also, you know, I do help make changes um, in policy and in funding, and I, I'm a big advocate. I don't just make films, get paid, go on to the next film. Like anybody who knows me knows that I'm an. I'm. I'm a big advocate.
1: I was remembering Trevor Noah's. Uh, he has some comedy. Um, you know, he does some stand up and he talks about this idea that every time there's some kind of uh, film or photograph of an app Af- in Africa, these children always have flies on their face. Mm-hmm. And he talks about it in a, you know, obviously in a comedic way. But I, I think that's what you're saying. It's yes. like, you know, we are the good, big, so, you know, somehow we're the generous uh, superheroes of the mm-hmm. world, and we're going to bestow our, you know, our care on our little charges.
0: Right. And to mm-hmm. be perfectly frank, like, I, one of the things that I've heard that I thought was brilliant was they're like, we need to stop using the terms third world. Or developing countries mm-hmm. in reality these are mm-hmm. formerly colonized mm-hmm. countries and that's why
1: uh-huh. they're
0: behind us it's not that I they see. lack the intelligence the creativity the innovation in I fact see. some places some stories coming out of Africa are talking about people making like you know solar panels out of this you know this DJ equipment out of garbage like right. the, the innovation and the and the creativity that comes out of um, some of these places are is aspiring so we shouldn't be you know, our cultures may be different, um, but at the root of it, you know, people kind of around the world want the same things. They want to be happy. They want to, you know, live a good life. They want to provide for their family. So it's like, Mm -hmm. we don't need to be stereotyping um, these different cultures. That's really interesting.
1: Well, hi there, Zestful Agers. I wanted to tell you about an online summit called the Healthy Aging Summit, where I join an amazing group of professionals coming together to teach you how to live with zest and increase your longevity. It's a four-day virtual summit from November 21st through November 24th of healthy aging experts who are speaking on how to overcome age-related challenges or declining mental fitness. And the best part about this online summit event is that it's free, but only for a short while. It's time to maximize your physical and mental health so you can stay active and avoid the pain of declining health. Be sure to register while the Healthy Aging Summit is still free. Just go onto my website nicolechristina.com and click on the Healthy Aging Summit banner. I hope to see you there. And I'm sure there's been a lot of books written on this and like uh, sociological uh, studies and writings. But this idea of how do we see ourselves as mm-hmm. Americans, as, you know, first worlders and, and and powerful and 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 that whole idea of an ugly American is mm-hmm. really what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are places like I, I was privileged to go to Saudi Arabia um, alone as a woman with a camera. So it was a unique experience for me. I was shooting a high level event with the, the crown prince who's now the king. And I was able to talk to a lot of women there. I was able to witness and see for myself actually this culture. And I came back with a very different idea of what oppression against women looks like because while they are more subdued in public, they run their households, like they underneath the abayas, they are decked out, they're beautiful, they're confident, their society just respects women being, you know, more, um, I don't want to use the wrong word, but, you know, less, well, let me put it this way. They were like, you know, Americans think Saudi women are oppressed. But some Saudi women think American women are oppressed because they see them in bathing suits, flashing their bodies, this whole thing. They get, you know, exploited. Their husbands cheat on them. Like there was just this whole shattering of stereotypes. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the greatest gifts I think I've had in my life mm-hmm. is being able to travel around the world, even though if it was for work, but I have, I have created my own ideas and perceptions about the world because I was so intent on traveling. I, I grew up in a poor family. I didn't step on a plane until I was 18, and I didn't see a lot. But once I got on a plane and I started getting the experiences I was getting, I was just hooked. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing better than me just being like, I don't – I'm not going to – my critical thinking skills at this point are so, like, on point because mm-hmm. I can read something and be like read through it and be like okay mm-hmm. I see I see, see sort of the the pro, the agenda, the agenda yeah. yes so who's I, writing I, it you know who's writing
1: it and what and what the spin is
0: right and I, and if I don't I can go I can figure out how to find out for myself um mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. a skill set that I think and a lot of Americans are, are don't you have. A quarter Chinese is uh, is that right? Yes, I'm it, a quarter Chinese slash Mongolian. Hmm. And do you think that
1: having that ethnicity helps you feel more connected to those around the world?
0: Well, I would say, I, I tell this all the time because my cultural references come from so many different places. I grew up in a, in a small family household with a grandmother who is Chinese, a hundred percent Chinese. I lived in a Mexican neighborhood in Southern California. And then I spent the last 25 years living in Brooklyn and working in Africa. So I get cultural references from all over the place. And, you know, I will say that, um, because of my upbringing and because of how I walked through the world. And, you know, I was the first one to go to college. Like mm-hmm. my mother was a waitress. Education was, you know, reinforced heavily, but my mother and my grandmother were not educated. So there was just this incredibly strong work work ethic that mm-hmm. I got from my mother um, that propelled me into the world. and um, And it just, I think, coming from a less privileged background, helps me connect with people who are on the ground like you know even the u.n said to me one time oh well should we call in sony should we do these big corporations and i was like the judge for this contest can do that because that's where he shines he's like in the hollywood this whatever i want to be like with the filmmakers on the ground like in refugee camps and like in Mm -hmm. poor neighborhoods because i can speak the u.n language but i relate more to people you know struggling and, and mm. figuring mm. things out so I, I have a unique um, ability because i've I've lived both, both worlds
1: you have you a know? foot in both worlds
0: definitely definitely
1: how do you how do you deal with the the amount and depth of suffering in the world, Lisa, so with your critical eye, with your, your desire to change things for the good, how do you sort of calibrate right. the amount of suffering that you take in as a human being?
0: So this is a very interesting and important question. So there were moments in my career where I was like, one, this is too much. And secondly, I don't want to be seen as a filmmaker who does poverty porn. I was struggling with Mm -hmm. ethics and with the emotional stuff. And a story that I can share is that one time I was in Malawi and um, I was interviewing a man who was dying of AIDS. He was very, very sick and he was in a hut that had basically nothing on it but a mat and some plastic, you know, Mm -hmm. bottles or whatever. And his two granddaughters who were sitting in ripped up, torn up, dirty, dresses and they couldn't go to school because the family couldn't afford um, school fees for the girls so he's sharing this story with me I'm basically sitting on a a really wooden small stool with my camera using the light coming in from his door as light to shine on it and a translator behind me and I spoke with him for probably about two and a half hours and he shared just a story about you know how his daughter died of AIDS her husband died of AIDS his wife is not sick but she's the one now responsible responsible for tending the garden so the family could eat but he did it in a way again that wasn't like poor me poor me poor me it was mm. like this was his reality but he still had a lot of dignity mm. and when I got ready to leave he's like I just really want to thank you from coming all the way from America to come and talk to me and I said no it's like it's my honor that you would share the story with me and he said I've never we've never had an American in our village is what he told me. We've never had an American. And so of course they wanted to give me a tour, Mm. but he said, Mm -hmm. so I really need to thank you. And I was like, no, like you've really shared something personal. And he was like, no, thank you. And I was like, no, thank you. And it came back and forth. And I started to get angry. I really started to get angry. And when I left, I remember I threw my equipment in the back of the UN SUV and I was just upset. And I was trying to figure out why I was so upset. And I think what I figured out as I was leaving was that, you know, my camera equipment alone could cover the cost of his medication and the school fees for his granddaughter for like a year. Right. Uh, Secondly, I represent a country that he keeps. Yeah. Well, and I represent a country who he keeps thanking me for, but at the time our policies were not very supportive of, you know, people in 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 dire situations like we have so much and so the the stuff Mm -hmm. that i actually struggle with when i go there i'm good when i come back sometimes i get frustrated at the excess and Mm -hmm. the privilege that we have here that people are so blind to see like they don't see like they don't know extreme poverty Mm -hmm. um and then you come here and people are you know dropping Mm -hmm. like ridiculous amount of money on frivolous stuff and then not being so concerned about like politics Mm -hmm. or what's going on in the world or advocating for anything. Mm -hmm. And so I really, you know, I started to have more difficulties coming back. And then there was a moment where I was like, listen, that's that alone, that my, my worrying about me is, is my is the privileged part that I'm not addressing. So I'm just witnessing this, this is not my life. I'm just a witness. Mm -hmm. So who am I to complain about, how hard it is, when that's their life every single day. Yeah, I so I changed my way of thinking about that and just say, you know, I'm not, this is mm-hmm. not, one, it's not about me, and two, even if it's difficult for me, it's not as difficult as it is for other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And do, do you have certain practices to keep yourself from falling into I'll just say, a depression or an overwhelm about the state of the world?
0: I mean, <laughs> my life and my work life and then my life and my and my personal life are, you know, very different. I need to, like, step away. Like, I need to get out. I go see my friends. My friends have shows. I absolutely crack jokes all the time. Like, I, I laugh as much as I can, and I have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, I walk a lot, and sometimes people like comment, they're like, you know, you don't, you seem like you're very standoffish or like, you don't really tell. And I'm like, no, I'm like decompressing. And I'm thinking about stuff. I don't even see you when I'm walking. (laughs) So every morning Mm -hmm. I, my routine is I get up and I walk through my neighborhood. I live in Brooklyn. I Mm -hmm. live in a great neighborhood. Um, and I go and either get iced coffee or juice or whatever. And I walk around the neighborhood and I, one, get myself ready for my day, but just also like walking is so, for me, meditative. Like I don't, I'm not somebody, I can't stand yoga. I was a dance. I was a hip hop dancer. Like I need like energy. Mm-hmm. I can't do yoga. I am I try to meditate every now and then, but it's not, it's just not how I process things. So I will go walk. Um, if I'm traveling, I'll go to the beach. I'll sit and look at the ocean. I'll swim. I'll be in the water. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time by myself. Um, so... That's really, you know, how I handle my stuff. Um, well, yeah. you're
1: intentional about it. It sounds like what you're saying is there needs to be a counterbalance and this is what works for me. Right. mm. What would you say to people who are listening now, Lisa? Because I'm sure they're they're wondering, well, you know, what can I do? And many of our listeners are empty nesters or they're going to be empty nesters mm-hmm. soon. They may be considering um, switching careers or they may be at the end of their careers. They may be close to retirement or it's starting to become a question, you know, what am I going to be doing for the next, um, two or three decades? Mm -hmm. What what would you recommend for sort of the average citizen who's caring and Mm -hmm. empathic?
0: So, I mean, I can only speak for myself and I think what I would suggest doesn't resonate with everybody, but I'm definitely somebody who believes breaking out of your comfort zone can sometimes be the best thing for somebody, um, If you haven't traveled excessively extensively, I would say travel Mm -hmm. Um, and don't I personally would say don't go to like just the, you know, touristy vacation Mm -hmm. things where you get fed everything and you're you're Mm -hmm. you're separated from the real community. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there are there are volunteer programs that you could you can go to. You'll come back inspired, energized, you'll have great stories to tell. Um, if it's something you can't do for whatever reason, um, you know, there's a lot of, and I'm speaking on behalf of the community of artists, but there's a lot of people that you can live vicariously through, like help support an artist who travels and they can come back and share photographs or come give you, you know, whatever. Ah. And you're, you're contributing to kind of the bigger picture. Cause this is the thing, like, you know, artists we know are oftentimes struggling to make ends meet, but, we choose that lifestyle, not because we couldn't, like my brother was pushing me all the time. Like, you know, you don't have a car, you're not married, you don't have a house. Like, what are you doing with your life? And I was like, wow, what makes you think I don't, I want your life first of all. And Uh secondly, what makes you think I couldn't do your life? Like if I really, really wanted to, I could have a job where I'm making tons of money that there is no question, but I made, and a lot of artists I know, especially artists in my circle who are like conscious artists who say, you know, I'm more passionate and I'm, I I want to contribute to the world in this way. And even though I have to make a lot of sacrifices, I, I have a hard time paying my rent, um, you know, my family relationships suffer, this or whatever, this is their their contribution to the world Mm -hmm. so if there are people who are like well i can't quite do what you do i can't give up my life and go travel around whatever you can also help them and they can share their experiences with you and you can live vicariously and learn from people who are doing this stuff in a much more intimate way than you can you know reading the news or or searching or whatever Mm -hmm. um but first and foremost i just i mean i i'm a big fan like People just should travel, especially Americans, especially Mm -hmm. Americans. We are so privileged here. Mm -hmm. We are so privileged. Mm
1: -hmm. Where can people learn more about your work, Lisa?
0: So... I'm so busy creating and being out there. I'm not very good at putting everything in one spot, but I do have a website. Um, it's Lisa Russellfilms.com. You can watch my TED talk. You can download my CV if you want. You can look at some of the creative work I'm doing at the United Nations. Um, if there is anybody who wants to support artists, um, and I'm not even saying for me, because I know plenty of artists who, who need the support, um, I can put you in touch with. People, um, if there's opportunities for me to come do a screening or a presentation, I do a workshop using Pixar in a Box, which is a great resource um, to teach people about storytelling. And it's not just for people who want to become professional storytellers, but even you know, public speakers, people who want to know how to um, analyze and talk about films and movies or whatnot. So I I do I do a lot. I do a lot. You um, really
1: do. Very. Yeah, but I'm,
0: I'm open to like any, you know, people always approach me with different ideas for things um, that they'd be like, oh, this could be fun. I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. I, I don't, I'm very free. I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I travel a lot. So I, you know, I have the ability and the, the, the privilege of being free to kind of do a lot of different things. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I so appreciate you taking time. I know that you've been uh, doing a lot of editing and Mm -hmm. you have your finger in in a lot of projects. And I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing
0: oh well and thank you you know i it's a it's really an honor to be able to share your personal journey um and especially in something like a podcast that can go and and reach so many other people around the world so thank you for for inviting me and and reaching out and and making it happen i really appreciate it
1: thank you so much for joining us on zestful aging if you like the podcast please share it with some of your friends I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable. But it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com and next week we're going to speak with Judy Butler who was a former hospital chaplain and now she's a pastoral counselor who specializes in helping adult children of aging parents sort through the challenges of caring for them. It's a beautiful interview and Judy knows what she's talking about. She's been through it and she has really helpful and wonderful advice for those of us caring for our aging parents. See you then.